being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong cj knows probably that like there are portions where i'm reading a couple passages mainly just like edipa and hilarious talking yeah and uh the like me cj and alex recorded portions (laughs) all right so i can get into it both cj and boyd i loved their sections for me though (laughs) you know i had to gravitate to the the nazi psychiatrist (laughs) in the novel (laughs) and i don't know okay i didn't do a lot of reading from like pension notes just like how i didn't really do a lot of like the alan moore encyclopedia for providence or from hell you know like yeah so maybe some of this stuff has already been excavated. I legitimately don't know, but I imagine some of the stuff that I talk about probably doesn't come up and I'll get into it. So we need to talk about the character, Dr. Hilarious. That is Oedipus's shrink. So very early on in the novel, uh, Dr. Hilarious calls Oedipus. In fact, in the first scene, when Oedipa basically hasn't done anything, like he calls on her early in the novel, she mentions him a couple of, t- a couple of times throughout the novel, but he only appears once separate from the phone call, and that's towards the end of the novel. Like CJ said, it was when, you know, Oedipa is like kind of breaking up a little bit. She's starting to crack up. And she wants some guidance from her shrink. And so she goes to visit him. And she finds him barricaded in his office with a gun, <laughs> having a nervous breakdown. <laughs> now, on paper, that's about the sum total of his involvement in the novel. Like he calls her at the beginning, she mentions him once or twice, and then they have an extended conversation at the end of the novel, towards the end of the novel. But most people, when they read through, they realize pretty quickly that this is a Nazi. Like, they hint at it a couple times, and finally, like, he just, like, Pynchon just says it at a couple points, right? Mm -hmm. So this isn't lost on the average, like, reader, I would argue. Now, allow me to read a passage. Uh, This is from the phone call at the beginning of the novel and for context Oedipa had just received the letter where she learns that she was appointed the executress of the Pierce Inverarity estate triggering the like zany plot that follows and we're talking like within pages she's talking to Dr. Hilarious as in Up to that point, Oedipa had really only reflected on her husband's preternatural sensitivity as a used car salesman and DJ, and then she gets this phone call. I just want to say, yeah, I feel like, again, Pynchon calling shots, you know, he uh, linking used car salesmen and DJs, and then, you know, that's very very he 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 saw the future for sure but anyways go on and on top of that noticing the sus elements of djs too oh for sure oh dude Mm -hmm. that's i just want to say really quick uh cj 
when you pointed out the uh the sick dick and the the volkswagens thing um Mm -hmm. i had spent probably like four or five years or maybe i guess longer under the impression that the band was suck dick and the volkswagens (laughs) (laughs) it wasn't until you pointed that out that i actually reread that it was like oh oh my bad (laughs) (laughs) and for the listener's sake of course that's one of these several bands that uh are mentioned uh in the novel so here's the passage It was Dr. Hilarious, her shrink or psychotherapist, but he sounded like Pierce doing a Gestapo officer. I didn't fake you up, did I? You sound so frightened. How is the pills not working? I'm not taking them. You feel threatened by them? I don't know what's inside them. You don't believe that they are only tranquilizers? Do I trust you? She didn't, and what he said next explained why not. We still need a hundred and fourth for the bridge. The bridge, De Broca, being his pet name for the experiment he was helping the community hospital run on the effects of LSD-25, mescaline, psilocybin, and related drugs on a large sample of suburban housewives. The bridge inward. When can you let us fit you into our schedule? No, you have half a million others to choose from. It's three in the morning. We want you. Hanging in the air over her bed, she now beheld the well-known portrait of uncle that appears in front of all of our post offices, his eyes gleaming unhealthily, his sunken yellow cheeks most violently rouged, his finger pointing between her eyes. I want you. She had never asked Dr. Hilarious why, being afraid of all he might answer. I'm having a hallucination now. I don't need drugs for that. Don't describe it. Bell. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about? Did I call you? I thought so. I had this feeling, not telepathy, but rapport with a patient is a curious thing sometimes. Not this time. She hung up, and then she couldn't get to sleep, but she would be damned if she didn't take the capsules he'd given her. Literally damned. She didn't want to get hooked in any way. She told him that. So, on me, you are not hooked? Leave then. You are cured. She didn't leave. Not that the shrink held any dark power over her, but it was easier to stay. Who'd know the day she was cured? Not him. He'd admitted that himself. Pills are different. She pleaded. Hilarious only made a face at her, one he'd made before. He was full of these delightful lapses from orthodoxy. His theory being that a face is symmetrical like a Rorschach blot tells a story like a tap picture, excites a response like a suggested word, so why not? He claimed to have once cured a case of hysterical blindness with his number 37, the Fu Manchu. Many of the faces having, like German symphonies, both a number and a nickname, which involved slanting the eyes pulled up with the index fingers, enlarging the nostrils with the middle fingers, pulling the mouth wide with the pinkies, and protruding the tongue. On Hilarious, it was truly alarming. And in fact, as Oedipus Uncle Sam hallucination faded, it was this Fu Manchu face that came dissolving in to replace it and stay with her for what was left of the hours before dawn. So here's the thing, right? (laughs) When people read that passage, what tends to stick out to them is the LSD and psilocybin mention, right? Mm -hmm. Now, keep in mind... 
the acid tests, the famous ones, they would start in 1965 into 1966. The crying of Lot 49 came out in April of 1966. <laughs> so right off the bat, this is extremely early to be keyed into LSD, considering that the boom, so to speak, had only just begun. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As always, we're always playing this game. Like, why did Pynchon, how did he know that? Why did he know that? Right? Like, Wait, wait, hang on. When you say the acid test started in 65, 66, are you talking about, like, the Merry Pranksters or, like, MK Ultra? Good question. Good question. I mean, I'm not that you, there's like not a clear distinction between those things, but like, I'm talking about the uh, the famous acid tests in California, which like Tom Thomas Wolf wrote about. Yep. Right. Yep. yep. Timothy Leary, yeah, electric Kool Aid acid test. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. So that was. It's interesting, right? Because there was LSD. Yeah in the United States before that point. But right. the average public didn't really know about it even after the acid tests. Like it took even a couple of years beyond that point for like the average person to like know about it, blah, blah, blah. So. And even then it was like, go ask Alice kind of like, oh, he thinks he's an orange that's going to get squeezed. Like, Yeah. <laughs> it took like into the seventies for like the average person to be able to like, you know, have access to it without going to like the hotspots or whatever. a literal CIA agent. <laughs> yeah. Wait, have you ever done acid? Yeah, I have. And it was after I, I started reading Pynchon, which I think was probably like the best move I ever made was nice. reading Pynchon first. Yeah. <laughs> Cause like, <laughs> I, I feel like there's a, it's really easy. Like if your first experience with like this kind of stuff, is like oh my god i'm questioning reality because i took drugs that can kind of tend to lead you down the wrong road but if you question your reality first mm. then, the, then the drugs don't like you know fuck you up quite as bad i would not my experience with it i only did it one time and i did not like it I was like, really this is not yeah no i i all right let me think of the things i did um Watched It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and saw <laughs> a garbage bag full of human heads one of the characters was holding a garbage bag, but like it was very gruesome. You're um, kidding me. No. Um, the girl that I was dating at the time, it was me, her, and then a friend of ours. And she like in very appropriately freaked out. And she was like, me and my buddy wanted to go on a walk. And she was like, you guys can't leave. And I was like, what? Like, why? And she's like, because they're outside. I was like, who? Oh, she's like, they're out there. The only thing that's going to keep them from coming in is if we barricade the doors. And so she went and got all the blankets and pillows in the house and like laid them <laughs> on the ground in front of the doors and against like the windowsills. You're shitting as if, me. No, no. If I'm, I'm, this is 100% true. What did you take like that like bad acid that's like... They... I don't know. It was... Like... <laughs> oh, yeah, brown acid. Yeah. No, I don't know. It was just very much did not have a good time. Would not that's wild, again. dude. Yeah, I, I heard that that does matter though, like which type you do or whatever. Yeah, apparently. I guess it's I've sucked. gotten lucky because, like, I've I've never, anytime I've ever done it, it's been like extremely normal. I guess would be the mm. way that I've, I've never I've never in my life had a hallucination. Oh, re- 
Oh, yeah. I couldn't move for like an hour. I was like stuck. We did listen to Dick Dale. That was cool. Oh, oh I bet that was cool. I'm yeah, a that huge was really Dick cool. Dale fan. Oh, yeah, he rocks. Hell's a... um, no, I literally just, I, I get like fairly talkative and like a little bit euphoric and that's that's it. That's all that happens to me is I'm just oh. like, yeah, cool. Life is good. Things are nice. <laughs> hey, look at that. That was my experience. That's wild. A lot of paranoia. A lot, lot of paranoia. <laughs> it's really bad. Oh, jeez. <laughs> digression, I guess, but, you know. But, like I said, like, okay, so a lot of people know when LSD was invented or synthesized first, right, in Switzerland, and then they might know about the acid tests, right? And mm-hmm. the period in between is very interesting and understudied and misunderstood is how I would probably put it because as far as anyone knows and I have researched this extensively right the first known appearance of LSD in the United States was in 1949 but there was widespread usage of it in the 1950s do you know who was distributing it and what they were doing with it i think you've told me before was it the cia weren't they buying it weren't they like buying shit tons of it well it was coming through the cia but the widespread usage of it was through psychiatrists so let me paint you a little picture the narrative about lsd that we get in the united states it's very fixated on like timothy leary you might get a little bit about aldous huxley Grateful Dead, Merry Pranksters. All of that. What we don't hear about is Captain Alfred M. Hubbard, the Johnny Appleseed of LSD. No relation, right? <laughs> I have looked into that. No, I don't think it's related to oh, thank God. our old friend, Elrond. <laughs> um, the Johnny Appleseed of LSD, Captain Hubbard, was a high-level OSS officer. So this is before the CIA even existed, right? So Hubbard was there on Aldous Huxley's second mescaline trip, and he personally dosed Aldous Huxley with LSD on his first LSD trip. So, (laughs) and mind you, this isn't like new information in the literature, right? Like I'm pulling from a couple books, like Acid Dreams has documented this. It's just not well-known, like... Publicly, like, right, yeah. Now, here's an interesting thing to reflect on. This Johnny Appleseed of Acid, he thought, like any drug-addled Joe Rogan fan, why, if we just turned on world leaders, we could achieve world peace. So that thing that, like, dumbass hippies and like just drug addicts think where it's like bro if we just got them to just try acid like think of what could happen that's what they were fucking doing in the 50s they literally did this like it's been speculated that jfk turned on and dropped acid yeah pretty likely that happened but this hubbard guy was literally going around and dosing top U.S. executives with acid. Oh, God. And 
shrinks and psychiatrists across the United States were basically doing LSD therapy. You know, that whole song and dance where, you know, some Joe Rogan type will be like, well, you know, it's actually like pretty helpful if you have PTSD or blah, blah, blah. Microdosing, da, 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 right. Yeah, do a little bit. They were studying that in the 50s and they were already doing LSD therapy on a wide scale. It was mostly for rich people. It probably works in a limited sense, right? I mean, I, I'm not like a drug Puritan. I think that like probably some LSD therapy is real, right? I don't know about what do you guys think about that. Um, I mean, I think in my experience, I, I think mushrooms can be very therapeutic. Yeah. Um, I like, and I'm of the belief that like, you know, weed is probably not totally harmless like stoners would have you believe but it's like better than alcohol but yeah I mean I think I think that like some substances in moderation can probably do people some good in some capacity um but I also think that like the the hedonism that like people on the left seem to embrace is like very much like that's no, that's a bad route to go down, in my opinion. Like, yeah. Exactly. What about you, boy? Do you got any thoughts on that? I would say that um, you're not wrong by saying that, like, it could have a, like, therapeutic uh, benefit. But to gauge whether or not somebody would gain that benefit from using psychedelic drugs, you would... <laughs> like you would have to put in so much work first and even then it would still be like a hit or miss thing like i'm who knows i'm i'm just some dumbass i'm not qualified to speculate on like how much a psychiatrist can know a person but like i dude just like (laughs) randomly guessing like you know what maybe a little lsd will help you (laughs) you are playing with fire there dude like there's a reason that some folks when they were doing these tests like had serious psychotic breaks like it is not for everybody. And so like you're playing a dangerous game. I also like to piggyback on that a little bit. Like I think that with, I think a lot of this stuff, it's like therapeutic, but like the problems that it's providing therapy for are probably could be solved with like restructuring society and, and like changing material oh, yeah. conditions and relations. Like yeah. for me, like, mushrooms have helped me when I've like helped me feel like a sense of clarity and purpose. Right. I mean, I don't do them anymore, like, but when I was doing them and, but like, I think the reason, like, that's just like a solve for like alienation. Right. Mm -hmm. That's not coming from inside me, or at least not primarily that's, you know, the product of like, you know, being not rich and, Right. No, like the the whole idea of like, oh, well, we need to like open up mass uh, like centers for like mushroom and LSD treatment and stuff. And that'll that'll solve America's like uh, mental health crisis. That's fucking bullshit. Yeah, that's that's mm-hmm. that's insanity. That doesn't make any goddamn sense, because like, don't get me wrong, there is a limited capacity in which psychedelics can help you, uh, you know, as far as mental health goes. I, I, I definitely believe that, that like some people can benefit from it. But most mental health issues in this country at this point are caused by the circumstances that our economic system has placed us in like we're enslaved by the most evil people in the world and most people are completely unaware of the extent to which it's happening like 
most people do not understand the material conditions of their own uh, literal enslavement. And so like, it's, it's not something that mushrooms can help you with. Yeah. But do you guys want to hear what Captain Hubbard thought about that? Oh, you know, we do. Sure. Yeah. So he was going around trying to foster world peace through LSD to that end. Hubbard carried out LSD sessions that were said to include a prime minister, various heads of state, UN representatives, and members of British Parliament. Now, would you be surprised to know that the actual list and the identities of these people is classified and nobody knows who participated? What? That's crazy. Weird. But needless to say, it probably didn't trigger world peace. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I think we could see. <laughs> like all of the assholes who do LSD and just like don't get better. Like we all know that that's how it is, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. for sure. But it's interesting, right? Because we might. It, okay. LSD synthesized in Switzerland acid tests if you're keyed in maybe you hear about aldous huxley if you're really keyed in maybe you might hear a little bit of rumblings about some intelligence in in between these connective points but you don't hear that lsd therapy was widespread in the 1950s that a bunch of executives and politicians were doing it you don't hear that they were doing it to the top tier of society (laughs) you don't hear what happened no, of course not. Uh-uh. What's going on here, man? I I have a little... Uh, this is a video I saw on Twitter earlier. I'm going to play it for you guys because I think it's relevant here. Hang on. Um, so this is a quote tweet to a post that says, uh, some of you have never had an ego death from psychedelics, and it shows. And this, <laughs> is, this is the person's response. It's a video from TikTok. Here we go. Your dumb ass ego death, bitch. Die. Then I'll be impressed. <laughs> All you need is to spiritually die to, to experience empathy. Nobody give a fuck. You still going to hell, Gandhi? <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's ugh, God damn it. That, that is really wild, though. Is that like like just people feeling like it's a yeah what kind of psychopath were you before you did mushrooms (laughs) like or lsd or whatever like and usually those people are still assholes Mm -hmm. like they're they're just like Mm -hmm. you know assholes of a different variety they're assholes who read those like little poetry books that are like three lines per poem that like talk about like yes fucking yes yeah that, like oh man i get this now it's like you fucking suck dude <laughs> they're the ones like unironically sh- uh sharing the like uh they what is it they suppress our medicine yeah, poison <laughs> right. memes, yeah. Like, how can it be bad if it comes from the earth yeah right <laughs> never mind that lsd was you know synthesized in a lab but so okay so i want to just reiterate to you guys you know how many people listen to the joe rogan program and like love to just like talk about like whoa albert hoffman they synthesized lsd blah 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 
and they love to tell the story about him riding home on a bike, this or that. Yeah. Nobody wants to talk about how Sandals Laboratories is owned by the Warburg family. Of <laughs> nope. The British, you know, and so forth. Nobody talks about what Captain Hubbard was up to. But it's in the number one book, Acid Dreams. I just am sincerely, like, I, I am certain that no one has fucking read that book because I read it and I, yeah, this is in there. And I'm just like, why is no one talking about this? Because let me tell you some other things that Captain Hubbard got up to. Please allow me. <laughs> Hubbard worked on high dose LSD therapy. He worked on group LSD therapy. He worked on LSD therapy with strobe lights. Uh. He worked on extrasensory perception tests with LSD. Uh. <laughs> Bad vibes. Bad vibes. Yeah. I want to stress to all of you that this was before the human ecology fund. This was before the acid tests. This was before Aldous Huxley. This is well cited, right? In the 60s, what was Hubbard doing by the time this was going mainstream? He was working for, stop me if this sounds familiar, Teledyne, a defense contractor. Oh my God. What does Teledyne sound like? Oh, uh, hmm, Yo-Yo Dine? Yeah. Okay, okay. Well, let me tell you just a little bit about Teledyne. They're still around. Teledyne currently operates in four major segments, digital imaging, instrumentation, engineered systems, and aerospace and defense electronics. Fuck. They were founded in Beverly Hills. Teledyne had a major presence in Huntsville, Alabama. Whoa. Bonus points if you know what else is going on in Huntsville, Alabama. What what was Dr. Hilarious? Was he a Nazi? Oh man. Was there any any Nazis in Huntsville, Alabama? Okay. So Hubbard, Captain Hubbard, he worked as Teledyne's quote, director of human factors research. I wish you would stop. If that doesn't just send chills down your spine. Yeah, dude, this is getting too, <laughs> this is too much. Dude, I'm it's bugging, it's, dude. It's gonna get worse, okay? We're only I don't like this. Make it stop. I don't want any more. So Hubbard also worked on a combined naval and NASA project. Fuck. We don't know what it was about, but we do know that it, it that it was involved with psychochemicals. Oh. What was NASA and the Navy doing with psychochemicals? Why, I don't know, but you can imagine that it was bad. Oh. It's still classified, so you know it's probably something really fucked up. Oh. <laughs> I'm straight up not having a good time, dude. <laughs> okay, so what are we to make of the passage from the novel when Dr. Hilarious says he was helping the community hospital run on effects of LSD-25, mescaline, psilocybin, and related drugs on a large sample of suburban housewives, the bridge inward. Well, we know that just it just so happens that they were in fact doing tests through psychiatrists 
doing LSD therapy in the 1950s. So this is not metaphorical and this is not a veiled allusion to like Dr. Sidney Gottlieb or something. Like there were housewives in California in the 1950s and 60s doing LSD prescribed by their shrinks all over the country, in fact. So <laughs> we know Pynchon worked at Boeing. We know that he probably worked with people who knew about this stuff. There's really no other way to be this keyed in on these types of things, right? Right. Hang on. I just, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Hang on. I'm sorry. Before you go on, I just, mm-hmm. so De Bruca, right? Yeah. The bridge inward. Am I the only one that's reminded of the doors of perception? Mm. right but the doors of perception written by huxley i just googled it published in 54 yes and so like i don't maybe i'm just drawing that connection but i mean if you're linking if that is a connection linking aldous huxley to a nazi doctor Mm. is like you know i'm certainly not going to get upset about that comparison (laughs) yeah amen now, here's another thing about Dr. Hilarious, right? So in the novel, they mentioned Dr. Hilarious cured a case of hysterical blindness. <laughs> well, you know who else had a case of hysterical blindness? A certain man named Adolf Hitler. <laughs> now, I'm not trying to like make this into a bigger find or a bigger deal than it is, right? But like... You know, real program to chill heads will probably know that I did an episode on Hitler's hysterical blindness. You know, other people have talked about it. All I'm saying is that the web of illusions and references that Pynchon makes goes pretty deep with Pynchon. And it's not just a throwaway line. Like, I think he is, in fact, referring to Hitler. He's got to be. Yeah. I mean, does he even have throwaway lines? Right? There's, I mean, there's seriously like this is the the main, arguably one of the main questions of the book to begin with is like, it, are there any coincidence coincidences when it comes to this stuff? And like the boysenberry thing, right? Right. Like, come on. That sounded so schizo when I first read it, and now I'm just like, no, it's legitimately referring to. But it's not. Like, that's mm-hmm. the problem. Yeah. There's like. There's like that Peter Pingwood Society or Peter, hang on, I have it. Yeah, yeah. Pingwood. Pingwood, yeah. And like it references that like they only operate, you know, so listener, this society is like a a far right group of like Russian expats uh, that sounds a lot like the white Russians. They refer to the John Birch Society as a left wing group. Yeah. Um, But they operate in three places. California, Washington, D.C., and Dallas, Texas. <laughs> and if that doesn't like set off alarm bells to you, white Russians operating in, again, California, D.C., and fucking Dallas, like, again, it's like, it's a joke in the book, like this society, like, but I don't know. Yeah, you'll bug. 
no it's no he didn't he didn't do any like and that's the thing to the casual observer and then to the completely fucking brainless academic apparently you get this notion that like oh well, he's just writing a book and like every once in a while he'll just throw something in there because he's trying to like structure the you know the, the whole thing and such you know, it's i i do not believe that anything is accidental in his books i don't think he wrote anything like necessarily just for shits and gigs like anything that he did uh, want to get shits and gigs out of he mm-hmm. also you know he factored important things into it and so like the idea that anything is throwaway in that book i i just any of his books i don't buy it and i wonder too like so if the question that Oedipa and the reader has to ask when they read the book is like what's coincidence what's conspiracy right if you it's again same thing with like the like if all the things point one direction if every rabbit hole you follow leads to something really serious and like salient then like have you answered the question right like you know like that to me seems like a pretty clear you know pinching yeah. coming down on one side right That's yeah right. Yeah. no i don't think he does leave it open-ended i, I no. think that he he lets you believe that it's open-ended if you're the kind of person who's willing to dismiss this kind of stuff because you're not you know really in the fight anyway yeah yeah um let's see here so in the passage that i read earlier or performed in program to chill masterpiece theater (laughs) oedipa mentions or you know in the narrative they mention the rorschach blots and tat pictures now a lot of people know what rorschach blots are but fewer people probably know off the top of their head what tat pictures are. But tat pictures refer to thematic apperception tests. Okay. So these are functionally like Rorschach tests. They are basically the same premise. They are interesting, kind of ambiguous photographs of people who could be doing maybe a couple things. And then they sort of have a patient like, explain what's going on in the picture the idea is that you have to force them to read into things ambiguity Mm. and therefore you reveal something about yourself in interpreting this text right Mm -hmm. same concept as a rorschach test now tat pictures thematic apperception tests were developed by henry a murray at Harvard in the 1930s. Now, if you want a nice deep dive on Henry Murray that goes deeper than what I'm going to talk about, check out the Subliminal Jihad episode about the Unabomber. (laughs) I also will get there, but let's talk about Henry A. Murray in a less in-depth capacity. So Murray, of course, was a lieutenant colonel in the OSS during World War II. What's interesting about Murray and the tap pictures is that he says that he got the idea for them when he was reading Moby Dick. He was a huge Moby Dick head. (laughs) Um, He was very into it. He was weirdly into the satanic reading of Moby Dick, which is like a whole other thing. Again, check out Subliminal Jihad for that. But... (laughs) um, Specifically with the tap pictures, though, he 
got into the idea of them because there's a scene in Moby Dick where the whole crew sees this doubloon coin, right? And each different character reads into the coin, like they read the meaning of the coin dramatically differently, even though it's the same coin. Every character interprets it differently. So like Ahab sees the coin of him, Ahab sees symbols of himself in the coin. Starbucks sees the Christian Trinity because he's religious. Other characters provide interpretations of the image that gives them more insight into the characters themselves based on their interpretation. Crew members, including Ahab, project their self-perceptions onto the coin, which was nailed to the mast, right? Ahab nails the doubloon, right? It's a whole scene. So Henry A. Murray was a lifelong Melvilleist, Moby Dickhead, right? And he maintains that Melville's, that all of Melville's au revoir was for him a tat, right? How, like, is this not like interpreting literature in general and Pynchon in particular, right? Like what you think about him says more about you than it does arguably about Pynchon, I would argue. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's absolutely the case. I don't really have anything to add. I mean, you can you can find the goofs and gaffs and you can just move on or you can you can do the whole post-structuralist thing. I have a book on my shelf, some guy who spent like 300 pages reading fucking pension through Deleuze and Guattari. <laughs> and it's like, how is that? Uh, eh, it's a slog, <laughs> honestly. It's like, I don't know. Deleuze and Guattari are like interesting guys, but I don't really know how much I'd buy into what they say. But this guy, it's just a lot of jargon. But, like, the reason I bring it up is, like, brother, like, you could have written that book about any author. Like, that was, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I think that I think that's dead on. He's a mirror, man. And like we said with the academics, they don't have anything to say. So they think Pynchon doesn't have anything to say. We're intensely paranoid and obsessed with <laughs> history and we think that that's what he has to say well we're right though i do think we're right. <laughs> more right than they are but like yeah yeah no the argument stands on its own i i've seen a lot of people say like read crying of lot 49 if you're trying to get into pension and if you if you get it you get it and if you don't you don't yeah. and so there's there's plenty of people that'll just they'll read it and be like oh yeah that was a crazy book that was weird damn that's crazy like I don't I don't know what that was and then right and that's basically the end of it for them and then other people are borderline paranoid schizophrenics like we are and uh, and are like oh shit I'm seeing you know hidden messages and arguably they are literally there oh yeah so you know who else was into the thematic apperception tests other than psychiatrists also the human potential movement. <laughs> also tat tests figure prominently in the novel A Clockwork Orange. Maybe you've heard of that. <laughs> so now allow me to digress just for a moment from the plot of The Crying of Lot 49. 
So the distinguished Dr. Murray also carried out one of those psychological studies on Adolf Hitler. I should clarify, the United States government asked him to look at his speeches, his, you know, mm-hmm. um, Mein Kampf, you know, and basically to do a psychological study of Hitler. So he did that. So Murray wrote this assessment of Hitler. You know, you can look it up. It's interesting. Dr. Murray also administered psychedelic tests to Timothy Leary in Harvard before Leary, of course, went on to become the prophet of LSD. You know what else Dr. Murray did? He developed personality tests that the OSS and the CIA would use to assess their agents. Oh, well, that's definitely not relevant to pension. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, different book, but uh, yeah, no, pension was definitely not uh, very pilled on the uh, the function of personality tests uh, of uh, government agents. Right. Uh, he was very Harvard build, right? <laughs> and then this is what we're all getting to, right? Murray, of course, also ran a research program at Harvard that included a one Theodore John Kaczynski. Hmm, that name's ringing a bell, Jimmy. Who who, who is that? <laughs> Uncle Ted. <laughs> <laughs> um, allow me to describe what the experiment consisted of, right? So, <laughs> and again. A longer treatment, of course, is in the Subliminal Jihad episode. I will say I wrote my section before they released their episode, but nevertheless, right. So Ted Kaczynski was just 17 years old. He was at Harvard, I think on scholarship, when he got roped into participating in this three-year-long study. (laughs) It was an experiment to study the effects of severe stress on the human psyche. The thing that they did was put them through intensive interrogations that were designed to be vehement, sweeping, and personally abusive. Now, there's some debate as to whether all of them received this treatment or whether maybe Ted actually got worse treatment than all the other little assholes, (laughs) right? It's not clear because a lot of this is still classified. Now, I quote from a book on the Unabomber here. Students were asked to write an essay detailing their worldview and personal beliefs and philosophies. They were then sat in a chair before bright lights, wired to electrodes, and subjected to intensive interrogation, which included attacks by members of the research team aimed at the very ideals and principles the subjects had put forth in their essays. The purpose of the interrogations was to gauge and evaluate the effectiveness of interrogation techniques used by national security agents and members of law enforcement. I just want to contribute. Another one of these effects is to give these sadists an opportunity to be (laughs) fucking sadists. Like, (laughs) holy shit, these are kids. Yeah. Yeah. No, and like, I, I, again, if you were to listen to the Subliminal Jihad episode, 
they document how Dr. Murray was a sick fucker. He was into like some weird, kinky shit. Kink shame. Kink shit. Oh, dude, it's the only like, way forward. I'm... <laughs> He's dead, right? Yeah, Murray is dead for sure. Yeah. Um, for sure, like, th- like, this was, among other things, a vehicle for their weird fetishes. Yes. Yes, it was. Now, critics of Murray's studies have called this experiment inhumane. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Pointing out, rightfully, that subjects were not fully informed about what they could be expected to endure. Many were coerced or even tricked into participating and then deceived into continuing well past the agreed-upon time frame. In in Kaczynski's case, what was supposed to be a one-year commitment stretched out to encompass three years, basically the entirety of his time at Harvard. Equally troubling was the aim of the was that the aim of the experiment was to break enemy agents. Yet Murray and his researchers were using these procedures on young and vulnerable university students who lacked the wherewithal and training to resist such grueling interrogations. Indeed, they were not enemy agents, but Harvard students who were at the university to be educated, not psychologically broken. Well, maybe, right? Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, no, I mean. Fine line, right? (laughs) In order to preserve the anonymity of these unsuspecting human subjects, they had all been given code names. Always a good sign, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Do you guys want to know what Uncle Ted's codename was? Please. Lawful. (laughs) Come the fuck on. Now, I'm aware that you could glean a lot of this just by watching like a Jinx video or something. But like, I do think that the details matter. And I do also want to reiterate that a lot of this is still classified. This is just what we know. <laughs> it's almost certainly more fucked up than this because they haven't declassified it, right? Think about how much better the world would be if we just destroyed Harvard. <laughs> like, I mean, untold human suffering, mm-hmm. not accomplished. Like, oh my fucking God. It's a... <laughs> It's a nightmare. It's an absolute nightmare. What was it? The crimson? Does that refer to the oceans of blood that (laughs) That Harvard is responsible for? Holy shit. (laughs) Didn't who's that who's that like eugenicist philosopher guy? You know, he was at Princeton. Um the guy who thinks that like animals are more worthy of respect than like people with disabilities. Oh, singer. Yeah, fucking Peter Singer. I liked animal liberation. I will say that, but he is—he's—he's he's insane. His other stuff is pretty freaking weird. The like the the thought experiment thing that he you know about the the puppy uh, the puppies and the chocolate or whatever. Like, no, you bring up a solid point. Like, fine. Wait, what's that? What's the puppies and the chocolate? It's this like. It's like this whole thing about like, uh, and Jimmy, you might have to correct me if I'm wrong here, but like the whole. Okay, well the whole the whole thing is like um 
so there's this dude who's like he's been in a car accident or whatever and he really loved chocolate and he can't taste chocolate anymore but he discovered that the only way that he can taste chocolate is if he tortures puppies in a basement <laughs> and extracts their you know, some chemical from their blood and injects it into him and then he can taste chocolate again what yeah and so the whole the whole point is like oh well is it okay that he does this to uh to to these puppies so that he can enjoy chocolate and if you answer no then that means you can't eat meat because you enjoy eating meat but you know you're causing suffering of animals by enjoying meat and so your own personal enjoyment is not justification for uh eating animals it sounds like it could be like some weird veiled allusion to like adrenochrome or some shit. <laughs> right. Yeah. I had a friend um, and she took one of Peter Singer's classes at Princeton. Oh, really? Yeah. And um, she, uh, he had the, the class write an essay on like, what's the most good that like somebody could do like with like one act I'm trying to remember this correctly. And I advised her. Don't say propaganda of the deed. Don't say propaganda of the deed. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of. My suggestion was that she should write an essay arguing that the most good a single person could do was for Peter Singer to kill himself. (laughs) Nice. I don't know if she wrote it, but. Um, It's funny, actually, because. I read Animal Liberation and his other book about like just general ethics, like way back in the Halcyon Bernie days of like 2016, right? Mm -hmm. And his grand prescription for making the world a better place, right, is to get a job where you make the most money possible. And then donate it to like Oxfam or something. Yeah, donate it. And I found that to be intensely wrong to the point where it's almost irresponsible (laughs) to be saying that because I think that the correct answer would be to like fix society. Mm -hmm. Propaganda of the deed. (laughs) Well, that's these, that's these fucking, uh, these people, they, they sincerely believe that like these NGOs uh, are like actually helpful and i yeah. i'm personally uh anti pretty much all of that like charities are generally evil money laundering operations uh basically any kind of it is like a lot of people don't understand that like nonprofits are basically as evil as anything can get um because <laughs> mm-hmm. they're their lifeblood is innocent people wanting to do good yeah yeah it's almost like psychic moral vampires or something. It's literally that's what it is. Is it they they thrive off of making good people that want to do good do obscenely evil acts in disguise. It's it's super fucked. I worked for Greenpeace for like two years as like a just like a canvasser, like door to door street canvasser, and like everybody there was always like, you know a good organizer is trying to organize themselves out of a job. I always thought to myself, like, all right, well, Greenpeace has been around for like 70, 60, 70 years, (laughs) and they haven't managed to organize themselves out of any job. So what does that mean? Like, are they just 
bad at what they do or do they are they not really trying to win like it's a huge discrepancy between the leadership plotting goals and then the uh-huh. people on the ground that are actually doing it like the yeah. people that are on the ground are the ones that are actually trying to do good for yeah. the most part we didn't have greenpeace who would do the color revolutions <laughs> damn let me okay so let me get back here <laughs> Real, yeah, let's get back on track so all the way back to talking about dr murray so you guys mentioned it but like how much so all of this stuff with dr murray reminds me not only of dr hilarious in the novel doesn't it also remind you of slothrop aka infant tyrone from gravity's rainbow yep Now, the nature of the abuse that Uncle Ted suffered and infant Tyrone was different, right? Right. But Slothrop was experimented upon at Harvard in something closer to, like, the Little Albert experiments, but, like, darker because it's, like, a little bit like child sexual abuse, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which they were kind of doing at Harvard. And, of course, this dr murray shit so like harvard involved in multiple different types of very weird fucked up experiments psychological experiments like all i'm saying is that like pension was keyed in on this as well oh yeah right now (laughs) allow me i think one more tangent here (laughs)
switching gears here towards the end of the novel. Oedipa, she's getting overloaded. She's seeing waste signs everywhere. This, these indications that Tristero is, you know, active. And in fact, like this waste, like this subterranean network of communication actually exists maybe. So she's cracking up. She's, so she goes to see her shrink, Dr. Hilarious, right? As she approached, she saw Dr. Hilarious's assistant, Helga. <laughs> and Helga tells Oedipa that Hilarious has gone crazy. He thinks someone's after him. He locked himself in his office with a Gewehr 43 rifle from the war. You know, they make it very obvious, right? <laughs> that he kept as a souvenir to make it abundantly clear that he's a Nazi, right? So so Oedipa goes in and she kind of half gets taken hostage, right? Hilarious is afraid that he's being pursued by three men with submachine guns. Now, it's not just like he's generally afraid of Israelis, though he is, like that he thinks that these three men are Israelis, but like the three men kind of echoes the three hobos. Mm-hmm. Does that not make you think a yeah. little bit? <laughs> and of course, speaking more broadly, in Freemasonic rituals, there are, of course, three assassins, right? Not to get all sidetracked on the Freemasonry thing, but as Oedipa and Hilarious talk, they they hit on so many interesting things. So I really just took like a snippet here, right? But like Oedipa, she sort of she sort of flips the script and she sort of uses shrink talk on him. So she's, she asks him, why are you resisting every suggestion I make? Hilarious just ignores her and he starts talking about his crisis. He explains that he was a follower of Freud. He calls him a cantankerous Jew. <laughs> and he says that he started following Freud as a type of penance. He describes realizing that he thought that the unconscious mind was like a room. And if you just turned on the light, all would be tamed. You could just see your neuroses. You could just see what's going on. And you could like solve, you know, mental health issues by just understanding the unconscious, right? That's like the Freudian approach. Right. But hilarious having this breakdown, he realizes that that is not the case. You know, with the LSD, we are finding the distinction begins to vanish. Egos lose their sharp edges. But I never thought this a drug. I chose to remain in relative paranoia. That at least I know who I am and who the others are. Perhaps that is why you also refuse to participate, Miss Mouse. I've worked on experimentally induced insanity. A catatonic Jew that's as good as a dead one. Liberal SS circles, that would be more humane. So they had gone at their subjects with metronomes, serpents, Brechtian vignettes at midnight, surgical removal of certain glands, magic lantern hallucinations, new drugs, threats recited over hidden loudspeakers, hypnotism, clocks that ran backwards, and faces. Hilarious had been put in charge of faces. 
The Allied Liberators arrived, unfortunately, before we could gather enough data. Apart from these spectacular successes like Spy, there wasn't much we could point to in a statistical way. He smiled at the expression on her face. So Hilarious reveals that he did his internship at Buchenwald. Right? Now, here's the thing, dude. Buchenwald. <laughs> First of all, it's interesting, right? It's not Auschwitz. It's not, you know. Buchenwald is about 50 miles away from Penimunde, which is where the V2 rockets <laughs> were. We all know Pynchon loves his V2 rockets. Penimunde, and again, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but like that, of course, is where many of the future Operation Paperclip Nazis were staying and would be transplanted. Now, just like how everybody thinks that they fucking know about the story of LSD, but they don't, everybody thinks they understand Operation Paperclip and they don't. <laughs> now, I I'm not probably going to take as long with this, but like, let's, let's talk about paperclip, right? Because rocket scientists are the best documented or most publicly known aspect to Operation Paperclip right? and related in parallel programs. But it wasn't just rocket scientists. They also brought over Nazis who were studying chemical and biological weapons, or as they also call it, psychochemical research. Hmm. Hmm. Weird. They, they brought them to the Edgewood Arsenal. Hmm. In case you were wondering, some of the earliest research into LSD was occurring at the Edgewood Arsenal. And yes, it was at the same time and with the same teams who were evaluating Nazi research into chemical and biological weapons, including working with Nazis actually there at the Edgewood Arsenal. So if you're wondering, yes, there is in fact a hand-in-hand -hand relationship between Operation Paperclip Nazis and MK Ultra research in the very, very early days. Like it wasn't technically MK Ultra yet, right? Right. But it was LSD research. So to get back to the Holocaust side of things, right? The Nazis had a pretty widespread, pretty well documented program where they killed off psychiatric patients, like just a classic eugenics thing where they were just like liquidating them. And psych like psychiatric patients were being liquidated like pretty early on in the list of people, right? Like, right. and they had the program where they were liquidating psychiatric patients. It was called T4. I think there's some other, you know, let's probably an acronym, but like they were <laughs> this program of liquidating crazy people, basically. It was also researching electroshock therapy which was a relatively new invention at the time. Now, do you guys want to know where they were researching, where the Nazis were researching electroshock therapy? Oh, no. It was at Monowitz concentration camp. Now, I know I'm all over the place, but like Monowitz came up in my episodes with Krupp, 
Monowitz concentration camp was the camp that both Iggy Farben and Krupp used. Oh no. At this, and I think actually, I think Monowitz might be like a sub camp of a broader camp. At this camp, the SS had a very prominent Polish Jewish neurophysiologist named Dr. Zenon Drohoki. He was like one of the world renowned innovators and one of the few guys working along the lines of electroshock therapy. So they captured him, but they didn't want to kill him. They wanted to like, yeah. So they had this Jewish doctor set up an electroconvulsive therapy machine and they carried out experiments on prisoners doing electroshock. Some of the first electroshock in the world, in fact, at this concentration camp. Now, reportedly, as Dr. Drohoki used it, it was genuinely therapeutic, though there is evidence to suggest that the SS doctors were using it for darker experiments. Not all of this is very... uh, We know certain details, but not all of the questions that we would want are answered, right? So (laughs) there are at least 30 known survivors of Auschwitz who report having been subjected to electroconvulsive therapy. Most people are somewhat aware of some of the really fucked up like Nazi medical experiments that they carried out. So let's read another passage from the novel. Dr. Hilarious says, I worked on experimentally induced insanity. A catatonic Jew was as good as a dead one. Liberal SS circles felt it would be more humane. So they had gone on, so they had gone at their subjects with metronomes, serpents, Brechtian vignettes at midnight, surgical removal of certain glands, magic lantern hallucinations, new drugs. Threats recited over hidden loudspeakers, hypnotism, clocks that ran backward, and faces. Hilarious had been put in charge of faces. The Allied liberators, he reminisced, arrived, unfortunately, before we could gather enough data. Apart from these spectacular successes, like Zwei, there wasn't much we could point to in a statistical way. So... Dr. Hilarious, a fictional character, asserts that Nazi doctors in concentration camps were working on creating experimentally induced insanity. He mentions metronomes, which are frequently used in hypnosis, serpents, Brechtian vignettes at midnight, surgically removing clans. This one is my favorite, personally. Magic lantern hallucinations. (laughs) Magic lanterns were studied at great length in the 19th century, particularly by Jean-Martin Charcot, who has been called the founder of modern neurology. Now, from what I've been able to research, and I have spent a lot of time looking at magic lanterns, not literally me looking at them, but like researching them. (laughs) There are two types, actually. There's your slide projector, like what would become movies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Pre-film, obviously. But, like, this would, like, lead to the innovation of film. These types of magic lanterns were invented by the Dutch. Hmm. <laughs> and hmm. the other, that has all, 
this has so many implications for movies, right? The other type of magic lantern has like, it's a lamp with tons of mirrors behind it. And you can look at it and see all these different lights and you can hypnotize yourself for various like occult reasons or do your own hypnotherapy or whatever. Hilarious mentions new drugs, threats recited over hidden loudspeakers, hypnotism, clocks that run backwards and phases. Now, it is not well known by the public that Nazis were basically researching mind control, but it is well cited. It's weirdly understudied. And I would ask why, why is that not well known? Yep. It would be because those guys were brought right over to MKUltra predecessor programs, right? Now, MKUltra in general would not be made public until the 70s. The Nazi connections were arguably never well publicized. How did Pynchon know this, right? We know that the Nazis were doing mind control research at Dachau and Auschwitz. What are we talking about? Because Pynchon mentions in the novel, he mentions stuff that isn't even well documented. Like, I don't know that they were working on like serpents and like, you know, hypnosis and these things, but we do know for a fact, or at least I've been able to find for a fact that they were doing electroconvulsive therapy and mescaline. Those are the two that are very well cited. As to the others, I think we could infer, but uh, we can't prove. The serpents thing, I the thing that uh, comes to my mind when you mention that is in Gravity's Rainbow, the um, the dream that he talks about uh, the, with the Ouroboros dealio. That's it's funny that that would come in there. Yeah, yeah. Man, you guys both remember Gravity's Rainbow better than me. I got it. <laughs> well, that's he. So the serpent he he dreams the Ouroboros, and then in his dream it becomes the like polymer that goes on to be the plastic that allows the creation of the V0000 rocket or whatever, like the apocalypse mm. rocket. So the snake becomes the molecule that becomes the bomb. Didn't the uh, guys who discovered DNA have like a dream about snakes or something too? Was I, think, I think it was twin snakes. That was... Don't think about it. Yeah, don't think about it. <laughs> Nothing will be gained if we go full schizo here. No, yeah. And I'm, let's let's just leave that one. <laughs> I'm almost done, but it does get worse. Yay. We know electroshock therapy or ECT. We know they were researching mescaline. We know about a doc a Nazi doctor named Kurt Plotner who would surreptitiously dope inmates' drinks with mescaline. Now, mind you, these are concentration camp inmates. Now we know. At the same exact time, in the United States, at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C. specifically, they were already, the United States, was already experimenting with mescaline and marijuana and barbiturates and scopolamine. It is very likely that the chemically-minded Nazis were also researching these other compounds, too, but we only know that they were for sure looking at mescaline. 
but we know that they were not only researching dosing inmates with mescaline, but we do in fact know that they were trying to combine it with hypnosis. Now, I want that to be made more clear. We know from history books, you know, we know it. Right. It's right. cited that Nazis were giving people mescaline and then hypnotizing them in experiments to figure it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then in 1966 is talking about the very same thing. Yes. And this has never been, I, like, it, I wouldn't say that the this Nazi stuff we're talking about is hidden, but like, it was never made particularly clear to like the public. Right. So if we're talking Auschwitz. Let's talk Auschwitz for a minute, guys. Come on. Let's stare into the abyss for just a minute, okay? Block 10 at Auschwitz was infamous for a variety of reasons. We know that it was a horror show because it had inmates, prostitution, they were doing x-ray experiments, oh, fuck. child murder, chemical testing, and it's believed that that's also where they were doing mind control experiments. Now, Block 5 at Dachau was doing malaria tests. That's where they did the pretty well-known infamous hypothermia experiments. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at all of these things. And I found out that Block 5 had one of the worst, most surreal things I'd ever heard. Something that literally sounds like it was from a pension novel. They held what was called the, a circus concentranzani, a concentration camp circus. No. Dude. Complete with a ringmaster, wrestling, acrobats, clowns, cross-dressing, and a barbershop quartet all carried out by inmates under orders from the Nazis. Block five, incidentally, is where they were doing mind control research. Was the concentration camp circus a part of that? Or was it just a surreal fucked up thing that the Nazis were doing? Now, if we want to suspect that the Nazis, as depraved as it gets, might ever try to combine mind control with sex, or maybe with pedophilia, these two places, and Monowitz, would be the places that they probably did this, or at least started to experiment with it. And if you're wondering, that Dr. Plotner that I mentioned... (laughs) If you're wondering who got Dr. Plotner's research, it wasn't just the OSS and CIA. They folded this research into Operation Bluebird, which would be related to MKUltra, but it wasn't just them. Naval Intelligence also got it, and the Manhattan Project got it. There we go. (laughs) If you want to know how much scarier and deeper this shit goes. So Dr. Plotner would later be given a new identity in a paperclip-related project, though he stayed in Germany, (laughs) but with a new identity, right? My, My point in going through all of this is to say 
people don't know the real history and Pynchon does. Right. And he clearly links Nazis to LSD, which is not to this day, not well understood. And he links Nazis to these widespread programs to dose the public with LSD and study its effects, which we talked about. And this is very, very early to be talking about these connections. Like we continuously remind everyone, the book came out in 1966. MKUltra would not be made public until 1975, though, of course, people were talking about the possibility of mind control for, you know, since like the 50s, right? Right. The Nazi connections to MKUltra would not come out until even later than 1975. Again, we can't know how Pynchon could have known all of this, but to wrap it all up, I will quote one of the closing passages of the novel. As the mountain of all of these discovered connections begins to weigh on Oedipa and make her bug out. Either way, they'll call it paranoia. They. Either you have stumbled, indeed, without the aid of LSD or other alkaloids onto a secret richness and concealed density of dreams, onto a network by which X number of Americans are truly communicating while reserving their lies, recitations of routine, and betrayals of spiritual poverty. For the official government delivery system, maybe even onto a real alternative to the exitlessness, to the absence of surprise to life that harrows the head of everybody American you know, and you too, sweetie. Or you are hallucinating it. Or a plot has been mounted against you, so expensive and elaborate, involving items such as forging of stamps and ancient books, constant surveillance of your movements, planting of post-horn images all over San Francisco, bribing of librarians, hiring of professional actors, and Pierce Inverarity only knows what all besides, all financed out of the estate in a way either too secret or too involved for your non-legal mind to know, even though you are a co-executor, so labyrinthine that it must have a meaning beyond just a practical joke or you are just fantasizing such a plot, in which case you are a nut out of your skull. Those, now that she was looking at them, she saw to be the alternatives, those symmetrical four. She didn't like any of them, but she hoped she was mentally ill, that that's all it was. That night she sat for hours, too numb to even drink, teaching herself to breathe in a vacuum. For this Oh, God, was the void. There was nobody who could help her. Nobody in the world. They were all on something. Mad, possible enemies, dead. Old fillings in her teeth began to bother her. (laughs) And then I skip ahead a bit, but for there was either some Tristero beyond the appearance of the legacy America, or there was just America. And if there was just America, then it seems the only way she could continue and manage to be relevant at all was as an alien, unfurrowed, assumed full circle into some paranoia. Now, my words here. Pynchon says that living in America and 
confronting any one of these many intricate plots that just lead to another plot, to another plot, to another plot. When we're faced by this, these, this paranoia, these conspiracy theories, right? They love to say conspiracy theories. There are just four options. First one, they're plotting against you. They are gang stalking you. They're inventing it to drive you mad. <laughs> or second, they're just fantasies. Third, you are hallucinating it. Fourth, you have stumbled onto a real alternative to the exitlessness. Now, that is the way up, my brothers and sisters. Pynchon says it. He says, the way out is to be an alien, assumed full circle into paranoia, because we cannot affect any changes if we're asleep. We can't do anything about this if we don't know about it. Total paranoia is total awareness, and that's not great. But a heightened state of paranoia is the natural, reasonable, rational response to the real world we live in, and it is not inherently bad. My point is that we can look at where Pynchon takes this paranoia. He doesn't take it to an anti-Semitic place, as so many people allege is the inevitable result. He doesn't take it to lizard people, as the hucksters and yucksters allege. He doesn't take it to a tinfoil hat place. He doesn't have schizophrenia. No, Thomas Pynchon takes it to a different place. He does a retreat, but not a cowardly retreat, a tactical and courageous one. He retreats into the past. He chooses to excavate history to find out why things are so fucked up. He excavates the past to see who carries out all this violence and greed. He centers the voices of those who fought against these violent, greedy men. Pynchon holds up as noble the rebels and bomb throwers of the past. Pynchon holds up the legacy of the Wobblies, the anarchists, the Reds, the strikers, the workers. Pynchon says they fought, they lost, but they were right. Things would have been worse without them. Now, CJ and Boyd, we've both discussed how Pynchon is absolutely not an apolitical author. I think that were he to write out his politics in a straightforward way, he would terrify people. (laughs) I think he's as radical as it comes. But this is the legacy of Pynchon. He knows who the enemies are. He knows what needs to be done. It's up to us to read between the lines and do what we can. Firm agree. That being propaganda, the deed. (laughs) (laughs) Tear out your feelings. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no, very. I think that was that was very well said. I think that that um, highlighting how Pynchon, you know, like people love to talk about how he's like, you know, preoccupied with the dispossessed. That's a word you see a lot, or yeah. you know, the disenfranchised like all these kind of like vague terms that like, you know, outcast, that kind of thing. And it's like, well, they're not just that they're like militant. They're mm-hmm. active. They're, they're people fighting back. Right. You know, pension doesn't deal with people who aren't engaged, you know, in a struggle. 
there's there's something to the thing that shitty guy you quoted who said pension is privileged yes he was a wasp he went to like what cornell right cornell yeah like this is true and i do yeah sometimes think it's weird when like white people intentionally like do something weird to make themselves like alienated or whatever yeah sure but this would be the right type where you champion as much as you can the people who are dispossessed he's a class traitor yeah yeah do you guys uh you guys know about william pension right his his ancestor in the early americas Mm mm-hmm yeah, he was like a he, he uh, made a fortune on uh, beaver furs and uh, <laughs> wrote this uh, heretical text uh, that landed him. His, his trial for heresy was on the same day as the first uh, of the Salem witch trials. <laughs> nice. Yeah, long history of the Pynchon family, and he definitely is a, uh, a class traitor. Yeah. No, and that's what that is the best that we can aspire to both you know not to be all in pull but like as a bunch of white dudes but also if any rich people are listening that's the best you can aspire to yep yep do you think there's any chance thomas pynchon like what what percentage would you put on thomas pynchon hearing this it's less than 10 for sure well you know like uh he maybe i mean maybe i don't know but like you know he's working on that new novel, so he might might not. He might be busy. Pension, come on program to chill to plug your novel. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear about the Simpsons uh, experience, and so yeah, please plug the novel, share a story <laughs> about you know what it was like recording those episodes. Yeah, I'm imagining a guy who really wants to meet Thomas Pynchon just so that he can ask him if Matt Groening is really a pedophile. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like he might not have even met Matt Groening. I mean, you know, like he's like only half involved. You know, yeah. he might not have even been running the show at that point. That's true. He probably only phoned in the lines anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is it did it ever get confirmed was what did he make an appearance in the inherent vice movie is that like they say he did i don't know if that was just press or whatever but i don't see a lot of old guys walking around those Mm -mm. yeah i've looked (sighs) well you guys have probably seen those like photos of him because he just lives in new york like yeah 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 he's just like a dude (laughs) he's like not actually like crazy like it's not yeah. like Salinger. Not, not like Salinger, yeah. Yeah. It's he's not nuts. Um I did want to something important I forgot to mention. I think we need to be more serious for a second. Um I you please don't laugh. Um Multiple times throughout the novel, Thomas Pynchon repeatedly uses the N slur. (laughs) And I think we need to hold ourselves and Mr. Pynchon accountable. So I'm calling us all in. And I think we should consider not releasing this because we don't want to platform a racist. Good point. 
Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I meant to say that at the top and I forgot. And then I platformed a racist for like four hours. Damn. Yeah, you you already done fucked up. Yeah. I'm gonna have to Well, we're calling you in fuck. as well. <laughs> I'm calling myself in every day. That's like all I do. Listen, you know how everyone assumes that cancel well, like right wing people or whatever, like they assume cancel culture is the problem. Mm-hmm. Total disagreement. Wrong type of cancel culture. We need cultural revolution dunce caps publicly. <laughs> yeah, no, just for a, sure. A bunch of people yelling at someone, they have the mm-hmm. dunce cap on and they're being shamed. That's what yeah. we need. No, way more shame. I do like, <laughs> I, I feel like, I think that that's a, a good theme of this show is that people need to feel shame sexually, publicly privately intellectually intellect oh god oh yeah l- l- just a, even a touch of shame for an academic would go a long way um no because they cr- i mean they cry about any sort oh of criticism god. at all like oh they'll they'll god. write whole articles about you know what they learned from you know being called out a little bit you, the most insane thing I ever saw in pension notes, because I used to sit down in the basement of the library and just they had like the physical copies and I just read them. But there was like a back and forth like bitch fest between two academics because one. So somebody published a uh, fuck. What are they called? Uh, like a book that accompanies another book. I'm blanking on the word. Oh, companion. Like a companion. Yeah. Like so. so yeah. So somebody published a companion to Gravity's Rainbow, right? I might I might have that. Yeah. Really? Maybe. I think yeah. I I think I've skimmed it before. Um but anyway, so guy number 1 writes Companion to Gravity's Rainbow. Mm-hmm. Guy number 2 writes an article in Pension Notes about how guy number 1 is a fascist for trying to impose meaning on a text the form especially such an anarchistic text as gravity's rainbow and then guy number three writes a response to guy number two saying he's not a fascist for some post-structuralist reason and then guy number two writes a response to guy number three and it went back and forth for like issue after issue of these guys just arguing if like a companion to gravity's rainbow constitutes fascism and if that's not reason enough to like literally like race ivy league colleges from the map i don't know what is <laughs> that's amazing that is yeah. so funny extremely stupid fellas, Such a waste. It, fellas is it fascism to impose <laughs> a, a strict reading onto a text are we fascists for making this podcast damn the more the more you think the more you have to think about much to think about <laughs> One thing that I wanted to add um, when you're talking about misunderstood paperclip and misunderstood like MK ultra stuff mm-hmm. is um, like CJ had said uh, tangentially uh, like the thing about uh, people criticizing pensions uh, like obsession with like film and television and stuff. Television uh, like as, as a medium was basically prototyped by the Nazis and the <laughs> United States and British sent squads dedicated to recovering television technology to bring it back to the U S <sighs> and so like 
I, I I hate to be that guy who just like keeps harping on this, but like television is like borderline mind control. And it was another one of those things like rockets and, uh, and like MK uh, ultra psychiatric techniques that, uh, that was pioneered by the Nazis using uh, British and American funding uh, <laughs> that we came in as soon as the Soviet union uh, defeated the Nazis that we came and scooped up and we're like, Oh yeah, no, that's ours. Now we paid for it. Hells yeah. See, that's the thing. You know, we were talking about how you have to really do work to appreciate effect. And the, you know, reading a pension novel is doing the work or whatever. And then every crazy historical thing we've said is couched in us bullshitting about this author for like six hours (laughs) to get to the point where you hear the fact like television is mind control technology that was taken from the Nazis. True facts of history that people are like everybody wants to be like oh well it's pretty crazy that we did acid tests for mind control and it's like no what's really crazy is that television is literally mind control (laughs) and it was prototyped by the nazis financed by the americans and british this is this is real yeah but nobody wants to hear it because it sounds insane Mm -hmm. right talk about a problematic fave right the tv sitting in your living room (laughs) i Um, don't even own a television (laughs) Wait, really? Oh yeah, brother. No, I no, I'm joking. I do. Oh. Uh, oh, okay. I was gonna say that's impressive. Um <laughs> just trying to do the Mr. Show thing or whatever. Oh. <laughs> I just the thing, like when I was reading the article from the, the guy who's talking about how like all these the new white guys are insisting yeah. that TV's bad so that they can, you know, have this place of privilege and like, you know, marginalization. It's like what if they're just right and TV sucks? Like <laughs> it does. It they really, are. Yeah, like it I don't it's just like you're again it's we've talked about this a lot tonight but like you're just projecting your own shit onto somebody else. Yes. Like it does suck. They're right. Get over <laughs> it. No, the, like the boomer meme of like, oh, television rots your brain literally true yeah it's not it's it's not a joke no like yeah coming around on like television is actually bad was like a surprise thing i was not anticipating but like no it's actually bad yeah no it really is and like you can you can like just say it in general like sitting there and just watching television is bad or you can get really specific and go to the fact that like literally from the very inception of television as a medium it was used by like former psychological warfare uh officers to indoctrinate people and like it served as a vehicle for state department propaganda when john foster was head of the state department while his brother was head of the cia like it was you can you can very plainly uh state that it was a literal mind control tool in the like propaganda uh in the propaganda fashion and that was how it was uh used by the nazis like goebbels was that's that's how he uh made his argument for like television use and like why it needed to be uh you know funded was like, oh, we need to have these television halls so we can uh, indoctrinate people with Nazi propaganda. Check out uh, Paul Klein fan cam on Sesame Street for more information. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot like this guy that wrote that article, I don't have my paper in front of me anymore because I moved to my couch, but like he's talking, he, he like wants to draw this distinction between like novels as like individualist 
and television as being like communal. And it's like, motherfucker, like everyone's just sitting in their house alone watching TV. There's nothing communal about it. And every single one of Pynchon's novels is about, if nothing else, community. Like his novels are like are about a plural, like a plurality of voices and peoples coming together and trying to struggle against like the powers that be. Like I just God. No, that guy can get fucked. You guys, <laughs> you guys are way smarter than all the academics. <laughs> I don't, we should I you know, I think there's always those posts going around that are like, what would you do after the revolution? And like, I would happily operate those re-education camps and you guys can take <laughs> the places of the professors. I'd be the chief book burner. <laughs> <laughs> Might cut that, I don't know. <laughs> no, uh, you I was thinking like, rather than be like an educator in the camps, I was thinking maybe like, uh, like not Nazi hunters, but it's for academics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, a professor of sociology that's been hiding out in the Ozarks, like just tracking him <laughs> down and hunting him like he's a wild boar. It's like, hey, <laughs> I, I'm noticing that there's a lot of uh, articles that just go absolutely fucking nowhere and make no point circulating <laughs> around these parts. You wouldn't be hiding any academics. <laughs> the opening scene of Inglorious Bastards, but it's just a bunch of fucking mouth breathing academics hiding under the floorboards. Uh, this is going to be like probably a very weirdly received episode if i had to guess (laughs) yeah yeah people are gonna love it or hate it well if listener if you don't like this episode you have a moral failing (laughs) yeah no i'm personally opposed to you if you don't like this yeah (laughs) like I have never made episodes according to what I think people want, but I think this is very specifically just what I want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, this one's for us. I also, yeah. I, I for the record, I've had a phenomenal time. This is wonderful, yeah. and it's been however many hours, and like I could, we could probably go on for a little bit. Um, yeah. No, this. I do great. think. I think there's also the risk, not risk. It's going to be interesting though, because people are going to be like, well, they're going to come to an episode about pension, just like people come to pension <laughs> with a certain like expectation. Yeah. And then this episode's not going to be that for a lot of people. But as with pension, I'd say that's just more about them than the quality of our work here. Oh, yeah. No, if you yeah. came into this and you're disappointed by like five hours of academic hate, obscure Dutch <laughs> history, and obscure MK Ultra and paperclip knowledge, then you're probably in the wrong area anyway. Yeah, honestly. You're in the wrong neighborhood. I mean, you can see how long the episode is when you download it. Like, yeah. They, oh, yeah. They know what they're getting into. Also, like, if like if you ask yourself like what would a programmed to chill episode about pension sound like i don't know how it would sound like anything other than this oh yeah well i think that we should eventually do another chums of chance episode oh for sure no doubt we still got inherent vice looming uh the specter of an inherent vice is uh haunting us wait have you not read it 
Oh no, I've I've read. Oh, okay. I'm just saying, like it's it, it, it's yeah. out there, hovering, just waiting. Yeah, yeah. I I feel like I was thinking about it, and I was like, if we did inherent vice, and if that if like this is well received and that's well received, we could do like a periodic gravity's rainbow, like because, yeah. there's four there's four parts, you know. Yeah. Yep. That would be, but that would be a pretty serious undertaking. Yeah, yeah, no, that would be that would like, take construction. It's and it's tough because like I don't necessarily like want to do like V. Yeah, I don't right. like V all that. I mean, I like yeah, V. But it's... Yeah, but you know what I mean. It's like not as rich or whatever. Like in the same way, V freaked me out when I read it because like I had just read um, the Book of the Damned by Charles Fort. Mm-hmm. And there's like. There's a couple specific references in V to things that are in the Book of the Damned, and I was like, oh, really? "Holy shit, yeah!" Like Fort, like the uh, Fortiano guy. Yeah. Oh yep. man, I did not pick up on that. Yes, yeah, sir. <laughs> um, I've never read Vineland. Really? Yeah. That's a oh good shit. One. That's a banger. Yeah, we could do that. That's also one where it's like you could just read it and then like pick a particular theme you know do the same exact thing basically. yeah yeah yeah, like, yeah. That was, I, that I already know what i would do <laughs> oh what would you do the whole like informant angle where people are just like there's like almost like a lump in like oppressed class of informants that are just like <laughs> shoved all over the united states made into informing all over and stuff doesn't one of the main characters have like an affair with an FBI agent? Oh yeah. Nice. Oh yeah. It's a good yeah. one. Yeah, we can do we could do whatever. I I will read any and all pension for any reason. And then there's always just the idea of doing like a closer read on just like one thing, like fire in the bulb or something. Yeah. Dude, I could Oh man, I love that. Fire in the bulb and like uh the whole the whole information Mr. Information and Skippy sequence. That's the fucking bomb, dude. You know what like I've always been stuck on is like what the fuck is like the adenoid thing about mm-hmm. what like yeah. what is he even talking about? What does that even refer to? An adenoid no hang on, hang on. Okay, I can answer that question to a little bit of degree. I got my phone though. Hang on. I'm gonna go back to the couch though because I want to be comfortable. Um, it's 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 a gland in the human body. Yeah, no, I know what an adenoid is. It's just like oh, okay. what on earth is he like? like what's his fixation about? on it? Or like, what does it refer to? Or like, what? It, what's the? I think I saw somebody give an explanation once, and I don't remember what it was or who it was that did it. I mean, it was probably Cuddle. Yeah, yeah. I'll see if I can dig it up. Oh. Um. I've never read all of Mason and Dixon either. I was going to mention it during yeah. uh, I was going to mention it during my my bit, but last night I was running through my uh, my spiel with Ray and mm-hmm. she literally fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> like with 5 minutes left she fell asleep and I was like, "Oh god, I'm going to need to like cut some of this. Like this is this is bad." <laughs> I, I mean, couldn't believe it. Like if you haven't like been conditioned by reading like LaRouche shit like yeah the idea that the Dutch are important is like a hard sell probably for like most people yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep so uh, 
sorry in advance if uh if people find that one boring but i'll look at the stats and see when people turn off the episode just kidding i think it's fascinating (laughs) yeah it'll spike they'll just skip it i did see so i did see that um it, so the the OKC episode is breaking records, right? Um, it looks like it will probably. I predict it'll probably be like the most popular episodes. Probably. What are, What are the most popular episodes? The one about the Brotherhood of Saturn, uh, the hip hop SoundCloud one, mm-hmm. the uh, the Hitler um, hypnotized. <laughs> that's a popular one uh the first episode is a big one and then it's like let me see oh the uh philip fairbanks pedophilia one and yeah like the james shelby downard um for a long time our from hell episode was way up there but then for some reason it like dropped down a little bit but basically a lot of the interviews like a lot of the bonus episode stuff Right. I want this one to be a record breaker. That'd be nice. I doubt it because I think just fewer people are into pension, but I think that it'll still be pretty popular, hopefully. Yeah. Like I said, though, the work we've done is unimpeachable. Regardless, I don't need that validation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.